Good morning. You guys ready? Ready for a Bible study? You have your Bibles? Joshua chapter 5 is where we'll be, starting at verse 13. We'll head to chapter 6, verse 5. This is our The God You Long For teaching series, and the attribute we're looking at today is that He is holy. We're doing theology here on uh, Sunday mornings, weekend services. Theology is the study of God because all of our problems stem from not knowing who God is or at the moment forgetting who He is. Every one of our problems are rooted in our not knowing who God is or at the moment forgetting who He is. We fight many battles in life. Would you agree with that? A lot of battles. Maybe you're fighting a battle this morning. There are relational battles, financial battles, physical battles, and the list goes on. So my question for you is how can we win against all odds? No matter what you're facing, how can we win? Can you win? Is it possible that we win regardless of the odds? The promised land was to the Israelites what fullness of life is to us. And just as they had to fight every inch of the way, so do we. But it's worth it. When we talk about the promised land, we say it's related to the fullness of life. Fullness of life, John 10.10, is also related to what we would classify as holiness wholeness, or sanctification. It's the most amazing life you'll ever live. In fact, when God invites us to be holy because He is holy, as it, actually, I think I, I might have put these verses down on your notes, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. If not, you can write it down. Eventually, we're going to get there. It's there on your notes. But when He invites us to be holy because He is holy, You're being called to do what will bring you the deepest and most durable joy you've ever, ever, ever experienced. There is nothing on this planet Earth that compares to the joy of being invited into a relationship with God where He transforms our lives and we become holy as a result. So we're going to look at the story of Joshua before the great battle of Jericho. Just curious here this morning, how many have ever heard of the story or maybe read it in Sunday school class about the walls coming down. Maybe you're facing some walls that need to come down here this morning. Well, you're in a good place because we're going to be praying for you later on today. And, uh, and we're going to look at those obstacles that, that we often face in our life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Then we'll dive into our text in just a moment. I'd like to pray one of our texts here this morning. It's uh, Psalm 86, 8 through 11, it goes right along with what uh, we want God to do in our lives this morning, starting in verse 5 of chapter 86 of Psalm. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to our prayers. Listen to our plea for grace. In the day of our trouble, we call upon you, for you answer us. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Give us this morning undivided hearts God, let us see that you're the source of amazing, deep, enduring joy. May we find our deep satisfaction in you. Let us see you more clearly so that we can savor you deep within our hearts so that when we leave here today, we can show you to this lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. We begin reading, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. That's an interesting response, isn't it? Literally, neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come, 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals for your feet, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, take note of this verse. He says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. This is the word of the Lord. Pretty powerful story. Forty years before this event, nation of Israel had been set free from Egyptian bondage. They were heading through the wilderness. It would have only taken them about 14 days to get into the promised land. And as they were facing the promised land, they sent in spies. And 10 brought back a bad report, and there were two that brought back a good report. You can study about this in Numbers chapter 13. Do you remember the bad report that was by the 10? They said, oh my goodness, you should see the, the walls, the walled cities. And in fact, Jericho, uh, the walls, there were places where the walls were 25 feet high and 20 feet thick. And many of the soldiers that stood on the wall could see for miles. And it was, it was really thought to be truly a, a wall that uh, represented unbelievable power and strength. It was a symbol of military power and strength, and many believed it was invincible. And I, I liken it to some of the walls that we face in our life today. Maybe you're facing things that, that seem invincible. This is impossible. How are we going to ever get through this? And, uh, and that's what he was up against. But when they first went there, they got the bad report. They go, there's no way we can do this. And yet there were two guys. Do you guys remember the two guys' names that uh, gave back a good report? Caleb and Joshua. Good. And they said, hey, we can do it with the Lord's help. He can, he's, he's promised us this land. We can take it, man. And because of the unbelief, they chose to follow the ten with the bad report. And this is really kind of how we kind of live out our life. I believe that you could be a Christian and still live in such a way that you never really enter into the promised land, the fullness of life, or really experience the wholeness, holiness that God offers us because of unbelief. And because of their unbelief, which should have only taken them 15, 14 days to make it into the promised land, and they begin to fight back the different uh, places and countries and, and to take it over. Uh, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until that one whole generation had died off. And now we have Joshua with a whole new generation getting ready to come into the first fortified city, which is Jericho, wandering. He's certainly saying, okay, here we are again. God, are you going to help us? Oh, God, we need your help. There's no way that we can do that because they were, they were ill-equipped. There was no way. If you were a betting person, you would have bet for Jericho to win in the long run. There's no way that these Israelites would have been able to take them out. And maybe looking at your life, you're feeling the same way. So, so what can we learn from this? Three things we're looking at here this morning. What does it mean that God is holy? We're going to learn about his holiness. What does it mean... That we are to be holy. We're going to look at three traits there. And then how do we become holy? Keeping in mind that holiness represents that promised land, that fullness of life that Christ invites us into. How we can begin to deal with our, our issues and our problems in our own life. So first of all, what does it mean that God is holy? Verse 14 of our text, chapter 5, it says that Joshua fell on his face. Why did he fall on his face? I think he believed that he was in the presence of, of deity, of God. In fact, this is one of the many cases where we see a Christophany uh, throughout the Old Testament. Christ, 
his pre-incarnate person of, of Christ here. And he falls on his face and this, this uh, God of the Lord or the, uh, the commander of the Lord's armies says to him, the place you are standing is holy. Let's talk about holiness. And particularly that God is holy. If someone were to ask you, what does that mean that God is holy? How would you respond to that? Do you know how important that is? That's really important for your understanding of who God is and your, your relationship to him. Because your, your concept of God determines the quality of your relationship with God. If you don't understand the various attributes of God, you're going to be ill-equipped to really be able to face life and deal with life. Once again, the reason why we have issues in our life and our problems are directly related to that we don't either know God or at that moment we have forgotten who God is. And so this would be an attribute certainly that we need to know. Holiness is the characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of his being. God has a lot of attributes, but the first one that he reveals, and you see this consistently throughout Scripture, he reveals his holiness. So here's a, here's a question for you. First service didn't do so good on this question, okay? So let's see if you guys do a little better. I don't know if they didn't have enough coffee, Starbucks. I don't know what the deal was. And they're the morning people. Now, you guys have slept in a little bit more, and so you should probably get this. But here's your question. In fact, you can kind of discuss it with a person next to you. If you don't come up with it real quick, then just ask the person next to you. What is the name of the Spirit of God in the Bible? In other words, what is the adjective that is used to describe the Spirit of God in the Bible? Real quick, discuss it with a person next to you. Oh, I heard it. I heard somebody say it. Holy. Anybody say holy? Woo! You did better than the first service. Amazing. I mean, it's pretty simple. Yeah, Holy Spirit. Notice it didn't refer to God's Spirit as loving Spirit or wise Spirit, though He is loving and He is wise, nor powerful Spirit, though He is loving, wise, and powerful. No, throughout Scripture, the, the Holy Spirit, particularly in the New Testament, is referred to as the Holy Spirit. It is the attribute that infiltrates all other attributes. It's an important attribute because his love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. His power is holy power. So what is this holiness? What does that mean? Well, let me give you the fill in the blank here. It's his incomparable, transcendent perfection by which he has no competitors and he has no contamination. Let's go through these uh, individually, just take time with each one. So first of all, he has no competitors. In other words, he has no equals, he has no rivals, he has no contenders. Let me give you a couple verses. I, I always give you a number of cross-references there. You can read the rest on your own, but let me read uh, a couple of them here. Exodus fifteen eleven. See if you can hear this, that he has no rivals. He has no competitors. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So, what does it mean that God is holy? It's his incomparable transcendent perfection by which he has no competitors. Here's another interesting thing about holiness is that holiness is the only attribute of God that is said with triple repetition for emphasis. I want you to think about that just for a minute. What did I just say? What does that mean? Does that make sense to you? Where is it in the Bible where you see the holiness of God emphasized three times? It's the only attribute in the Bible where you see that. You don't see the angel saying, loving, 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 in the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He heard the, the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. We also see that also being said in the book of Revelation. Why is that? What is he saying? What are the implications of that? Here's what he's saying. In the very presence of God, 
That his holiness, and by the way, anytime the Bible uses that, when you study the Hebrew, for instance, if you study through the Hebrew in the Old Testament, there would be a place that you might come to. And for emphasis in the Hebrew, they usually double the word. For instance, uh, there's a place in the Old Testament where it talks about pure gold in our language, but in the Hebrew it would say gold, gold. There's another place where it talks about a deep pit in the Old Testament, that's in our language, but in the Hebrew it would say pit, pit. Isn't that interesting? So when it's talking about God, it's saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Why? Why is that so important? What were they being overwhelmed by? This is what they were being overwhelmed by. Is that the God of creation, the God of this Bible, the God that is right here in this service right now through the work and the power of his Holy Spirit, is beyond, beyond. He is above, above. He is in categories beyond categories. There's almost a sense of, oh my goodness, this is overwhelming. There's no comparison to him. And you get that sense when you see when people encountered God, they had that sense. There was that hush. It was like, in fact, they couldn't even look at God. Most of it that had that encounter, we'll talk about that in just a, a minute. And so it's his incomparable transcendent perfection by which he has no competitors, no equals, no rivals, no contenders. And then he has no contamination. He's absolutely perfect, righteous, good, just, and pure. Let me give you a couple verses there. Just so that you can hear it. See if you can hear it in these verses. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I mean, he just, the writer here just keeps emphasizing it over and over again. Psalm 18.30. This God His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. These are just a couple of the verses that are found in scriptures that relates to God. So it's his incomparable transcendent perfection by which he has no competitors and no contamination. Now, let me bring you to the next point on your notes. It is, first of all, comforting. Would you say that it's pretty comforting to know that God has no competitors, especially when the Bible says in Romans 8.31 that if God is for you, who can be against you? That means something, doesn't it? So if you're on God's team, you know, and that he's working for you, there's nothing that can interfere with what he wants to do in your life. It's pretty amazing. So that's one reason why it's important to understand his holiness brings comfort, but also it's unbelievably beautiful. In, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the beauty of God, that there is no contamination. His beauty, and you hear me talk about this a lot, that his beauty is breathtaking, that I talk about being smitten by the beauty and the glory of God. There is nothing that you have ever seen, anything that you have been in awe over its beauty is a dim glimpse compared to the beauty of God. Everything on creation, you think of the the most beautiful landscape, the, the most captivating sunset or sunrise or, or whatever, and, and that's a dim glimpse of the beauty of God. But there's something that's troubling about his holiness also. It is comforting because he has no competitors. It's beautiful because there's no contamination. And it is the most threatening of all of his attributes. Why is that? Why is it the most threatening? Let's talk about that just for a minute. I've got a number of verses here, Hebrews 12, 14. It says that without holiness, you cannot see God. So that's pretty threatening. Unless you're holy, you can't see God. Unless you're holy, you can't see God. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, be holy because God is holy. So the Bible tells us that we need to be holy. Or we're, or we're not because he is holy. And then Matthew five forty eight, Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh my goodness. I've blown that just waking up this morning. I mean, really. Didn't take me long to not to foul that up. And, uh, and then what's interesting, and I, I, I gave you these references a few weeks ago. Remember when 
In fact, we studied this, the third chapter of Exodus, when, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. What was his response? you guys remember? How did he respond? you guys remember? He was like, he had to look away. He was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed with the holiness of God and his own sinfulness. Remember Isaiah? What did he say? What did Isaiah say in the sixth chapter? When he saw the Lord, he was he, he encountered the creator of the universe and he said, woe is me. I'm cursed. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now what's interesting about that is that he was a prophet. The thing that he found most pride in was in his ability to speak. And yet in the very presence of God, what he found the most pride in was useless. He felt, I'm undone. This is... I feel terrible. And that's what he felt. Which is an interesting lesson is that we tend to build our lives on a lot of things in our lives. We put our pride in our children and how they turn out or, hey, look what I drive or look where we live or look what I've accomplished. And in light of God's holiness, it is, it's useless. You were undone. You realize, oh my goodness, what if I built my life on this foundation? It's worthless. In light of God. There's another one that we talked about, and it was with Peter when he was fishing with the, he was out fishing with some other uh, fishermen, and they'd been fishing all night, couldn't catch anything, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, uh, why don't you throw the net on the other side? <laughs> it's like, yeah, right, we've been fishing all night. And you want us to just throw the net on the other side? Like, yeah, that's going to really work. We're fishermen. We know what we're doing. And so Peter kind of reluctantly goes ahead and throws it over board and he pulls up more fish than he has ever caught in his life and immediately you guys remember how he responded he's like oh my goodness I'm in the presence of deity of God go away from me I'm a sinful man that's what he said he just get away from me there's a really a a comical story I don't know if it would be comical if I was in the story but it's comical to watch the disciples but there remember this story in Mark 4 the disciples are frightened by the storm Anybody remember that one? They're freaking out. I mean, these guys are fishermen. It's a pretty terrible storm. They wake up Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He calms the storm. And then what do the disciples do? They're more frightened by Jesus than they were the storm. (laughs) It's comical. Why? I think it was the holiness, deity in person. They were overwhelmed. Which, by the way, it's interesting. I think it was Sigmund Freud that said the, that people created religion, you know, created God so that they would have someone to help them with the storms of life. Well, that's kind of crazy because it seems as though Christianity created a God that's, that's more, you know, more, we're more afraid of this God than we are the storms of life. And which I think is a great lesson here. In fact, when you study the scripture, the people were more frightened by by God than they were the events that they were facing. And if we created a God to help us to get through those events, why would we create a God that we would be more fearful of than the storms of life? That doesn't make any sense. It's because we didn't make up this God. And in fact, I'll tell you, there's a lesson in that, that if you fear God, you will fear nothing or no one. The problem... The reason why we become so anxious over life and the issues of life is that we don't really have this understanding of the holiness of God. We don't understand that he has no competitors. He has no contamination. He has no rivals. He's absolutely perfect. And so our inordinate emotions that tend to dominate our life are just revealing to us we don't have a proper understanding of the God of the Bible, the the creator, who, as we said last week, is mindful of us and cares for us. So let's talk about this threatening part. This, this idea that he threatens us, that it creates a threatening. Why is that? I think it's because, in comparison to his light, we see our darkness. In comparison to his beauty, we see our ugliness. In comparison to his perfection, we see our sinfulness. In comparison to his power, we see our weakness. It's all exposed when we encounter this God. In fact, I don't really believe that you've encountered this God, the God of the Bible, until you have been exposed and you see your wretchedness and you see your smallness and you see and it humbles you. Um, I tried to relate that to, 
to my own life, even as it related to human superlativeness. This is divine superlativeness, but, but we've all experienced it before when we've been around human superlativeness. I mean, I was thinking back when I was in grade school, I was the fastest kid in the fifth grade. Woo! <laughs> I was a speedster until my parents moved and we started going to another school and I moved up into the junior high ranks and there was a few other kids out there that were just, uh, there was a couple that were faster than me, but I was still right in there. I was pretty competitive, and then I got into high school, and so in grade school, I was a sprinter, but when I got into high school, there was no way. I wasn't even fast enough. I wasn't a sprinter. I was a middle distance runner, and even at that, I wasn't even that fast, and I won a few medals, had some fun. It was a lot of fun running, but I would have never even considered going to the college ranks and running because, I mean, that, that level of, of talent, superlativeness, I mean, it made me feel slow. And then to even think about even being an Olympic runner, do you have any idea how fast these guys run, these guys and gals? I couldn't even keep up with the gals. <laughs> They'd run circles around me. And, and, and that's how it is. Even around human superlativeness, when you're around someone that's prettier, smarter, stronger than you, you feel weak, you feel small. You feel inadequate. If that's true around human superlativeness, even more so around divine superlativeness. That's what they're experiencing. Now, I got to deal with an issue that's really prevalent in America today. And a lot of people will, when in looking for churches or listening to preachers on TV, they they will use the criteria, I want to feel better about myself. So, I'm wondering, if you encounter this God, and the first time you encounter with this God, and in fact, if you're walking with this God, should you feel better about yourself? Should you feel better about yourself because of, because of what? And, and, and that should be the question that we should begin to ask ourselves. Your first encounter with this God should humble you before it gives you the confidence that you need. And I oftentimes will run across people, you know, and so my question, if God is holy, and the Bible would say, how many would say that we're, we're pretty sinful? Would you agree with that? Can you admit that this morning? We're all sinful. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. It says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. So the Bible says, puts us in this category that we're pretty sinful. In fact, you know, it's interesting. There's a few texts that, uh, it's not on your notes, but if you want to write these down, it actually says in 1 Timothy 6.16. 1 Timothy 6.16, write that down. It says, because I've heard people say kind of in a smart aleck way, well, I want to see God. I just want him to reveal himself to me right now. Uh, No, you don't, okay? No, you don't at all. Have you ever seen roadkill? How about a, a bug on the windshield of your car going 80 miles an hour? It's not pretty. And in fact, that's what that verse talks about, 1 Timothy 6, 16. No one, God lives in unapproachable light. No one can see God. No one has ever seen God. It says in Revelation six sixteen, these are the ungodly that stand before the Lamb of God, Christ. And he begins to pour his wrath upon them. And this is what they're crying out. They cry out to him. They cry out to the mountains to fall on them and to kill them. These guys are suicidal because they're saying, oh my goodness, we cannot bear to look into the eyes of the Lamb of God on the throne of God. Pretty amazing stuff. So, so if we're sinners and then we come into the presence of a holy God, it's going to expose our sinfulness, isn't it? So we're probably not going to feel real good initially. Is that true? Would you agree with that? Okay. So how many would say that, that, that we're bad? If we're bad, we're bad. So if you're bad, and if you've done bad, then you should feel bad. If you've done bad, and you feel good, you're a psychopath. Okay? Would you agree with that? And we've got this world that's filled with a lot of psychopaths. I mean, that's frightening. In fact, they'll go to counselors who will say, oh, you don't need to feel bad about that. You need to feel good about yourself. There are preachers on TV that won't ever deal with sin. Oh, you need to feel good about yourself. There's too much negativity in this world. You, we want you to feel, we want everybody to feel good all the way to hell. That's what's happening. No, you know what? I'm convinced you encounter the living God, you're not gonna feel very good. Everyone that encountered him, woe is me. 
I'm an unclean person. I am sinful. And to the degree that you encounter his holiness is to the degree the magnitude of his grace sweeps you off of your feet and loves on you and brings healing and you walk out of there transformed with unspeakable glorious joy. It's only to the depth that you begin to understand your dire straits that you are in, the the need that you have, how desperate you are is to the degree that you begin to see the magnitude of his provision for you. And, and, and so we need to always keep in mind that God, God never reveals, God never shows us our sin except to heal us by his grace. So my sister down here that said, yes, we should feel good. Yes, if we've encountered the holy God and he reveals to us our sinfulness and then we understand his grace and he brings healing. He brings healing to us. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you will never be healed by the grace of God. What is being promoted in in many of our churches today is what is called a cheap grace. Let's just all feel good. Let's feel happy. I would question whether or not many of those have ever really encountered Christ. It is the most humbling thing that you'll ever do and at the same time Nothing will bring you greater confidence and courage. You'll have, com- you'll have humility and confidence at the same time because you'll begin to see his grace and you will appreciate his grace. And when you sing the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, it is sweet. I'm telling you, you're gonna just love it and you will have unspeakable glorious joy. And that, folks, is that what, that's what transforms your life. And so even in walking, as you walk with him, there are times that as I walk with God, as it says in 1 John, that if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Why would it say that? Because it exposes our sinfulness and our wretchedness so that why? Like a surgeon, like a doctor that has identified that you have cancer, he's not gonna ignore it. He's gonna be aggressive with it. He's gonna do everything he can to, to relieve us of it so that we can experience life. That's how our God is. That's how he loves us that much to expose that which would ultimately destroy our lives. You haven't seen God's holiness until his purity and perfection causes your complaining about him and arguing with him to fall pitifully flat. You don't understand his perfection. He's holy. He's perfect in every way. To encounter God's holiness is to be so overwhelmed with his perfection that you realize it's ludicrous to argue and complain or question him. Job 42, 6, Job reaches the end of the book. This guy's a righteous guy. God even says, hey, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a righteous man. He, uh, he fears me and he turns away from evil. And yet by the end of the book, he's, pretty, he's shaking his fist at God saying, God, we'll show up, we'll show up, what's going on? And then God shows up. And God says some pretty, pretty harsh stuff. He says, who darkens my counsel with empty words? Who the heck do you think you are? Do you know who you're dealing with? I love you, but you're not trusting me. You're not putting your trust in me. It's pretty heavy stuff. And when he gets done with that event, this is what Job is saying. I, I used, I'd heard about him, but now I've seen him. <laughs> In fact, this is what he says. I wrote this down. It was pretty interesting. He says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then, he, and then God says to Job, Job, you need to pray for your buddies. You know those miserable comforters that kind of led you astray with all their craziness? He says, pray for them because I'm about to lower the boom on them. I'm going to hammer them. It's pretty interesting. Listen, you don't want to mess with the holiness of God. This is real deal. It's real stuff. And it's, it's, just, it's part of his character. And uh, the holiness of God not only shows you the seriousness of your sins, but also the sin of your seriousness. Even your best efforts fall flat. So what does it mean for us to be holy? Three traits. Let's look at that. Three traits. Undivided heart. That's the first one. Look at this. If you weren't awake, you are now. And uh, let's take a look at this. Verse 13 Notice what he says. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Remember what uh, Joshua said? Joshua said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14. 
And the commander of, of, of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army said what? What did he say? No. In fact, literally he says neither. Joshua was asking, are you going to help me take that city? That's what Joshua was asking. Would you agree with that? Wrong question. If you say to God, this is what Joshua was saying, if you say to God, I will serve you if you make my family, my kids successful, if I'm successful at work, if I can make more money, if I can get the raise, if we can get the house, if you'll heal us of the disease or whatever it might be, if you're saying, God, I will serve you if, then the if is what you are really serving, regardless That's what Joshua was in essence saying. You're not even beginning to become holy until you want God more than anything else. Our biggest issue is is a divided heart, and we so desperately need an undivided heart. That we need to be so smitten by the beauty of God that no matter what kind of suffering we're going through, we can put him on display. We can put on display his beauty his glory, his value, and his worth, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of success, even in the midst of it doesn't matter because we're going to use those as opportunity to, uh, to do that. I've seen that in you guys. I've, I've, I've mentioned that before. And there's a number of people that I know that you're going through the gun, going through really difficult times. You're up against some difficult times, and yet I've seen that. I've seen you continue to exalt Christ in the midst of those. That's, what it's, that's an undivided heart. There's a number of verses there. Holiness in a Christian's life is not a morally restrained will. And oftentimes we think of holiness as more as externals as opposed to internals. But it always begins with the internals. And we're going to work through this. So it's not a moral restrained will. But it's a supernaturally transformed heart that has been smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. Because you want him more than you want anything. And so no matter what you're going through, you can put him on display. Because of your... Your love for him. So what, is, what are signs of a divided heart? Would worry be a sign of a divided heart? Absolutely. We worry because we don't know his holy, his perfect, pure love, wisdom, and power working for us. That's why we worry. We have a divided heart. We need an undivided heart. What's another sign of a, of a divided heart? We, we become bitter because we don't know his holy justice that will eventually make all things right. We become bitter because we look and we think people are getting away with these things. Why do they get what they get? They live like hell, and I'm trying to serve you, God. What is up with that? And you're not living in the reality of God's holy justice that one of these days he will balance the books, settle the score, and make things right. What would be another mark of living with a divided heart? We become depressed because we don't know his holy providence working all things together for our good and his glory. So an undivided heart, that leads to an unconditional obedience. You're not even beginning to become holy until you want God more than anything and are able to say to God, I'll obey you regardless of what happens or what I get from the deal, whether we conquer Jericho or not, because if I have you, I have more than enough. Um, I'm excited about 2012 because for a lot of different reasons, but one is one of my favorite sporting events is coming up in the summer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Olympics. And now they've got it split up in such a way that they've got the Olympics every two years. So you've got the Winter Olympics and then the Summer Olympics every two years. So it's pretty cool. I prefer the summer. I like the winter, though. It's pretty, pretty cool. But the Summer Olympics, and if you ever get a chance to, to do you think that any of these that are going to be running in the Olympics, they just uh, kind of show up there two weeks before and start training? This sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? How about a year before they, they, they run or perform? No. Actually, it's a life-devoted in everything that they do revolves around their winning that gold medal. Everything is made subservient to that gold. And guess what? 
So it is once you've encountered Jesus. So my question for you, have you encountered Jesus? Do you understand what I'm talking about when you encounter Jesus? Because there's a lot of people who say, oh yeah, I signed the card, walked the aisle, got dunked in the tank, and then you'd look at their life and you go, I don't really, I don't see that everything in your life is subservient to putting on display the glory of God. It looks as though your life is all about you and not about him. So I would question whether or not you encountered God. I mean, maybe you did. Maybe you walked away from that. Maybe you're not living in, the, in vital union with him. I understand that. I mean, I do. I struggle. I have a divided heart. I pray daily, God, give me an undivided heart. Let me see your beauty and glory. I'm easily attracted to other things. And so that's what we desperately need. But, but holiness starts with an undivided heart, unconditional obedience. And then we become more and more, and that's where it really begins to be manifest in our life, unlike the world. What's up with the sandals? Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Why would he do that? You remember that in the, the story of Moses, Exodus 3? Um, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. The book of Leviticus, most of the time when you start reading through the Bible, most people don't make it past the book of Leviticus, okay? It's a hard book. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about because you don't even make it past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Yeah, it's like don't make it out of Exodus, okay, to get to Leviticus. Leviticus is a hard book. It's, a, it's, a, it's, just a, it's about holiness and it talks about holy people, which would certainly be moral people. Uh, but, but it speaks of also uh, clothing and pots and pans and, and, and utensils and having all these things that are holy and so what it teaches us is that something is holy when it is only used in the service of God. The opposite of holy is common. Now what's interesting, it has to be more than being moral because the Pharisees were moral, but they were unholy. They were moral people, but they were unholy because their, their morality was for themselves and not for God. So what we're saying is that if indeed I have an undivided heart and it's unconditional obedience, I'm going to be unlike the world in that my whole life is going to be about living for an audience of one. That's what it means to be holy. That everything I do, everything I say, as it says here, a couple more verses you can write down. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do also the glory of God. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word and deed. So here's your heart. This is what's going on. Everybody look up here just for a minute. This is what, what you're thinking in your heart. My wife and I got together with some friends last night. And uh, went to Payway. It's one of my favorite restaurants to go to. I love their food there. It's good food. And I got some leftovers I'm going to be eating right after here when I go home. But uh, if, if, if I let you go, uh, if we get out of here. So we'll get out of here. But we uh, went with some friends. And here's what my heart is. My heart always hasn't been like that. And I didn't really do that good of a job. But my heart was this. God, as we interact with this couple May you be exalted, and may Nancy and I stir up greater appetite within them for you. Now, that wasn't always my heart's desire. Typically, it was just, it was more about me, about what's going on, and all that. But that was my heart's desire. I believe that's what that is. That no matter what you do, that you would live your life in such a way that you would put on display that he is valuable, and he is worth a lot to you, that you want him more than anything, and you want everybody else to know him. As you've heard me say many times before, God is most glorified in us. We're most satisfied in him. So it's about lip smacking. But you can't lip smack unless you're really tasting of the goodness of God. And so the, the most important thing that we can do every day is to dive into his goodness, to experience his grace and his goodness. As he exposes the darkness in our life, we allow him to come and bring the healing that we so desperately need and that we can share that with the world. So let me ask you this. And I, give, I put this down and then we're going to finish this up. And then we're going to give you an opportunity for prayer this morning. But the first century... Christianity grew rapidly. Why? Why did it grow rapidly? Was it their big buildings, great preaching and music? No. It wasn't any of that. It was the lives of the Christians themselves. And there were four things when you study that first century church that stood out. This is just a good, kind of a good checklist for us. They had integrity, unbelievable honesty, sympathy in a revenge culture they were forgiving, chastity, no sex outside of marriage. And generosity. Committed to helping the poor through their local churches. Let me read a couple quotes. And then we're going to talk about how do we get to that place in our own lives. And how does Christ change our lives. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. The serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. Blaise Pascal said that. So how do we do it? Here it is, three things. Holiness is a joint venture between God and us. Joshua 6.2, notice he says, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. And then in verse 3, he says, you shall march around the city. What? You gave it into our hand and then, yeah, we got to march around the city? Yeah. It really, it's a combination of both between God and us. It's a joint effort. Even as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, work out your salvation. He's speaking to Christians. Work out your salvation. Not work for, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he gives you the desire and then he gives you the ability to pull it off. That's what they're doing here. John Owen said it this way, God works in us and with us, not against us or without us. Number two, holiness is a process that takes discipline. What's up with the seven days of marching? I think that represents spiritual disciplines. How many have ever read your Bible and prayed and you didn't feel like you really were accomplishing anything? Show of hands. Oh, yeah. How many of you have ever come to church on a Sunday morning and didn't ever feel like, wow, that would seem like I just wasted my time? How many feel that right now? Yeah, okay. You're out of here. Where's the, where's the usher? We will pull this guy out of here. Um, why is that? I think that you're going to have some dry spells, but if you continue to do it, how many have continued to do it in spite of how you felt? Praise God, that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. You've got to continue to do it because what are they doing? They're marching around the wall. They had to have felt pretty foolish. <laughs> We're marching around the wall. We're going to do it again this morning. Let's do it. Everybody get up. Let's go. Around the wall. What's this for? What is this about? Oh, my goodness. This seems like we're wasting our time. No, you're not wasting your time. You are not wasting your time. You continue to do it. You continue to do the disciplines, and that's what it's talking about there. And then talked about the priests. We need to have leadership. Talked about the ark, the presence of God. The Bible has a lot to say about the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to experience more of God. We face many Jerichos every day and often are tempted to give up as the spies were. Numbers 13. God can free you from every hurt, habit, and hang up. He can free you from everything to bring you into that fullness of life that he offers you. Here's the last one. He was wholly committed to you, therefore be wholly committed to him. What's up with the sword? He had a drawn sword when he faced him. You don't draw a sword unless you're going to cut somebody. What is that? The sword represents judgment. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, what guarded them from coming back into the garden? What kept them from coming back into the garden? It was a flaming sword Represents judgment. The Bible says, for all of sin, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So we deserve death. You deserve death. But guess what? This person here is representing Jesus. And years later, it says that he came to this earth and he took the sword for you and I. He died. He didn't come to bring judgment. That's his second coming. He came to bear our judgment so that we can enter back into the garden, we can go into the promised land, we can experience the fullness of life. He will bring about holiness and wholeness and sanctification as we look, look to him and, and his life. One last quote, and then as I pray, I'm gonna have the people that are gonna be praying with us this morning, we're gonna have three stations, one here, one here, and one right back here. This is that morning when we will anoint you with oil and pray for you, and we're gonna end their service a little bit different. Usually when we do this, we do it a little bit quietly. And I'm going to read a story. It's about St. Augustine and the struggle that he had. And, um, and then I just want you to sit quietly. We'll pray. You're going to sit quietly. Reflect on what we talked about here this morning. And then if you feel that you need prayer, find your way to one of these stations. 
But if you don't, and after you've sat for a while, you've reflected, you've allowed God to speak to you, feel free to exit, but do that quietly if you would, please. Let me share with you this story. St. Augustine had a few walls that needed to come down, Jericho walls, and for him it was sexual promiscuity. But I want you to listen to what happened. I believe that he's really showing us and demonstrating how his heart was ravished by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. He says, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. This is his prayer to God. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about God. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Though not to flesh and blood, you outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any of the secrets in our heart. You who suppress all honor, though not in the eyes of men, who see all honor in themselves. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, you who are sweeter than all pleasures. God is most glorified in us. We're most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfied in him, we are crucified to this world. How do we overcome the issues of this world, the temptations of this world, the struggles of this world? world is by being satisfied in him. To be holy is to be holy God's because he wholly gave his life for us. Let's pray. God, thank you. What, a, what an amazing... A topic, um, God, I'm stunned a bit, even as I've reflected on this throughout the week and then as I presented it here this morning once again of your, your amazing holiness. I'm, I'm blown away. You're perfect in every way. God, we love you. We worship you. May our hearts be ravished by your beauty and your glory. May we see that that your holiness is your incomparable, transcendent perfection by which you have no competitors and no contamination. You're perfect in every way. We honor you. We worship you. We need you. And so, God, as you reveal our sinfulness, may we be healed by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to have prayer, we will anoint you with oil. You need to know this. There is no hurt. There is no hurt that can't be healed. There is no habit that can't be, that can't be broken. There is no hang-up that can't be overcome in Christ. He is here this morning. I don't know if you sensed his presence. He's here powerfully this morning to bring freedom to our lives. He loves you. He loves you. So open your heart to him this morning. As you feel that uh, you have spent a few time, a little bit of time this morning, then you can exit quietly, but please do that quietly. Thank you. God bless you.